0: A listener production. A lot of people don't believe in love at first sight, but with me, it was. I was lucky with Nola. I fell in love with her as soon as I saw her. I really did.
1: The love story of Nola and Brian Schofield reads like a chapter from a romance novel.
0: Once we left school, I noticed this beautiful young woman. I was share foaming down near Wellington, and. She was a stunner, like, you know, a beautiful woman driving a white ute, and I realised who it was, but she uh, didn't like me at all because she said, no, I don't like you because you're bossy.
1: From their initial encounters on the dusty streets of Wellington to the undeniable bond that would later unite them, their relationship was not without its challenges, tragically losing a daughter when she was just a child. Even in the face of this profound loss, Nola emerged as the pillar of strength that held their family together. She was the perfect wife, mother, friend and champion to the causes close to her heart, serving as a longtime member of the Country Women's Association.
0: She, she held us together. She was um, very, very independent, a true lady. We often smile because we had three sons. And uh, there four of us, we would always come second in an argument. And she disputes that, but we always did. So it was, it was just one of those things, you know. We had oh, 53 years together before this terrible event went on and, and I was such a lucky devil to have such a woman. I never thought she'd die. We'd gone into Sydney to have a double knee operation and we'd got back to Singleton and then all hell broke loose. Within three days, she became critically ill. Twenty-six days in ICU. And really, when I look back at the photos that we often get photos out uh, and have a look, you can see how ill she was. But I was totally oblivious to that. Ovarian cancer's known so little about, you know, like, and it's just there. It just it just shows up and, and doesn't take any prisoners.
2: We often see women when the horse is bolted, so we can't do anything to modify their risk because they already have their cancer diagnosis. Dr.
1: Rachel O'Sullivan is no stranger to stories like Brian and Nola's. You see, ovarian cancer is a silent threat that often evades early detection until it's too late. Why? Because as it stands, no screening test currently exists for ovarian cancer. And diagnostic tools are rudimentary. And the same applies to endometrial cancer too, the deadliest of the reproductive tract cancers.
3: The reason it is called silent killer is because when these women are diagnosed, to the time they are dying, there's a very short window. And because they are so sick, You don't see them going around and telling people that this has happened to them, this is so unfair. Because by the time they go through chemotherapy, if there's a surgery offered, they will have surgery as well. You know, they are too sick to do any advocacy. They are too sick to to educate others. We are losing 1,000 women every year with ovarian cancer. If we can go to the moon, if we can communicate between different continents, then, you know, improving outcome for 1,000 fellow Australians is not a tough ask.
1: Professor Pradeep Tenwa is the director of the Global Centre of Gynecological Diseases at the University of Newcastle. Together with his team, they're developing novel blood tests that can detect ovarian and endometrial cancers at a time when they're still highly treatable. But that's not all. They're also developing targeting therapies to help treat reproductive cancers, while at the same time conducting research into reproductive habits that could fundamentally change the way women think about their reproductive health and take charge of it.
3: You are really looking for needle in a haystack. A lot of people will think that women's health is related to women, and that is not true. Who want to live in a household where your partner is severely affected by a disease? Who want to live in a household where your daughter is, can't go to school? Who want to live in a household where your mother is affected by a cancer? So I think it's, a, it's not a women health issue, it's a family issue.
1: Hi, I'm Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandi Wandiyan and Geringer woman, and I'm from the University of Newcastle. And this is the minds changing lives.
3: In Australia, every year, 2,000 women get diagnosed with ovarian cancer. The you know sad truth is that half of them will die. So 1,000 wow. women will die. And if you look at endometrial cancer, 3,000 women are getting diagnosed, and then 1,000 one third are dying every year. Ovarian cancer is also sort of a disadvantage in a way because it occurs in women who are a bit older age. And as you know, the society, whole persona of society is toward younger people. Mm. So that's where also these people are forgotten because majority of women are diagnosed when they are 60 onwards. Hello, my name is uh, Professor Pradeep Singh Tanwar. I'm the director of Global Center of Gynecological Diseases at University of Newcastle.
1: Tell us a little bit about yourself. We'll get to know you and also, you know, your area of expertise.
3: Yeah, so I think uh, my area of expertise is in women's health. Why I'm sort of interested in this area is there is a huge gap between, you know, how the women's health is sort of served currently and also what we sort of see in other areas of life. So, so if you look at 196 million women have endometriosis currently, and then 700,000 women in Australia. You know, it takes eight years just to get them diagnosis. So it's a massive gap. If you think about a person who is having period pains, who is, you know, missing school, if you're a teenager, if you're an adult woman, you naturally you're missing a week when you're having periods because of pain and then you have to wait eight years just to get diagnosis. Mm. So not not many areas where you see such a massive need.
1: The Global Centre of Gynecological Diseases was developed with three central goals in mind. To advance translational research in gynecological diseases, create greater awareness for women's health and diseases, and provide outcomes that will guide patient care. And they do this by bringing together academic and clinical leaders, industry partners and philanthropic and community organisations in the one place.
3: What we are trying to achieve is trying to address that gap. So can we fulfil that gap and can we make a difference there? Because even a small difference will make a difference for thousands, if not millions of women. And then another aspect of Global Centre is to educate women. So we know that women who are living in countryside, women who are living in regional areas, they have worse outcomes compared to women who are living in cities. Mm. Not, one is excess. And second is what we find in, in case of ovarian cancer patient is first time they hear about ovarian cancer is when they get diagnosed. First time they know about ovarian cancer, their family hear about ovarian cancer is when they get diagnosed. So that means during that time, even if they were having symptoms, they never suspected that ovarian cancer could be one of them. And and naturally, if they don't raise that, GP also have, you know, they got thousands of things to to sort of troubleshoot and thinking it could be a flu, it could be indigestion, it could be anything else. And and so by the time you're diagnosed, 70% of women are diagnosed when it's just too late. I would have walked, you know, like over broken glass and bare feet if I
0: could have made Nola's Nola's life a bit better. Once this is determined, well, you know, and you're like a madman grabbing for anything, you're like a drowning person trying to get air. And had we had we known?
1: When Nola became sick, herself and Brian never suspected ovarian cancer. She was experiencing abdominal pain and bloating, a loss of appetite, and she was extremely exhausted but that could all just be chalked up to food poisoning, right? Nonetheless, she went to see the doctor. She was given an ultrasound, which is standard practice. The results showed no abnormalities. But her symptoms persisted. This cycle continued until, eventually, she saw a doctor that immediately rushed her to the hospital.
0: Uh, We had a marvellous, marvellous specialist that, put us in on a Friday in uh, Newcastle. She was in terrible pain. He examined her and recommended we go to the hospital straight away. We hit the hospital. They had uh, CAT scanned and immediately found stage four ovarian cancer. She walked out and she said, here's another one.
2: We don't actually have a good screening test for ovarian cancer. So they've tried, there's been some multiple huge studies looking at hundreds of thousands of women where they've looked at various combinations of blood tests and ultrasounds trying to pick up ovarian cancer early and just hasn't worked. Um hasn't been found to reduce deaths from ovarian cancer and the majority of women still present with advanced disease where it's already spread inside their abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. So the majority of women with ovarian cancer unfortunately present with advanced disease just because a lot of the symptoms are a bit vague or can be easily attributed to something else.
1: Dr Rachel O'Sullivan is a gynae-oncologist, so reproductive tract cancers are her specialty. Treating ovarian cancer usually includes a mix of medications like chemotherapy
2: and or surgical intervention. Probably the most common operation we would do would be a hysterectomy, so removing a uterus and a cervix, and um, usually fallopian tubes and ovaries as well. Right. Our most common cancer that we see here in Newcastle would be endometrial cancer, a hysterectomy removal of tubes and ovaries and also doing sentinel lymph node biopsies where we're taking a lymph node from each side of the pelvis. That would be our most common operation. Mm -hmm. For ovarian cancer, we remove those gynae structures, but for those operations, we're also aiming to remove any cancer that we can see inside of someone's tummy. Often we're, well, we may not necessarily be the first point, but we might be the first point where someone's having a serious discussion with a woman and her family about what's actually going, going on and what the next steps and things are. Usually we're in the position that we can offer them some form of treatment, but certainly we do see some horrible stuff and, and some days it hits you more than others. How does cancer, particularly reproductive cancers,
1: impact someone as an individual but also, you know, their broader
2: family? I think the majority of women that we see with gynae cancers or reproductive cancers are postmenopausal, so they're older women. Mm. But, you know, we are talking about women. They're usually someone's mum, they're someone's grandmother. Then though, I guess we see the younger women. Obviously, they're facing their own mortality with a cancer diagnosis. Potentially what we're going to do or what we're going to recommend in terms of treatment may affect their ability to have children. And a lot of women may not necessarily have wanted to have children but then when we then tell them we're taking away that ability of course that's a huge that's a huge whack in the face if I were to be tested
1: for ovarian cancer right now yeah. how how would they go about that what's the current
2: method usually s- to start with a pelvic ultrasound because we want to see what's going on with your ovaries if there's any free fluids swishing around in your pelvis also having a look at your uterus to see does that look normal or is there anything abnormal looking there if you had a cyst on your ovary that looked abnormal, they may then do a blood test, an ovarian cancer tumour marker called CA125. It's not diagnostic of ovarian cancer, but it can help us stratify a woman's risk and work out, does this cyst need to come out? Can they see a general gynaecologist? Do they need to go and be seen by someone in a gyne oncology unit? If something looked quite nasty or the CA125 was quite high, you would probably be sent for a CT scan of your chest and your abdomen and your pelvis as well.
1: Although ultrasounds are useful diagnostic tools broadly, they are not reliable when it comes to ovarian cancer. CAT scans are the only instrument that can accurately visualise precancerous lesions or cancerous cysts. But because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are so vague... Doctors are put in an impossible position.
2: In general, the earlier you detect a cancer, the better the prognosis, the better the survival is. So anything that we can be doing to improve that would be great. You've got, for example, screening for cervix cancer has reduced the amount of deaths from cervix cancer that we've seen over the last few decades, but Mm. we've got nothing, nothing for ovarian cancer.
0: A CAT scan should be recommended because, forget the cost, that woman's probably a member, of like, got a husband and family and mm. kids and she's a sister, um, she's got a probably a mother, but these women are just completely, completely forgot about it. And we know, we found out there that Noel had pleaded for a CAT scan, that the doctor rec- recommended another ultrasound and virtually signed it up. But there's nothing we could ever do about that. On the final day, you know, um, I just kept saying to her, you know, you go ahead. I'll be following you. Wherever you go, I'll be with you. But just relax, it's all right. And they'd gone into um, palliative care and there were some beautiful flowers Hmm. uh, out in the... the, um, out in the garden, and I said, have a look at those. Where you'll be, I said, so just, it'll be all right. But where wherever you go, we'll be with you. And she died about 25, about 26 minutes past five. How do we let women know or give them any chance for this thing? We've probably lost every battle we've been in. But as long as somebody
3: wins the war. One of the we ask ourselves is what is the current need? So, current need is we know that patients are getting diagnosed late. So, what we do about it? Mm. So, that means we are working in that area like how to give them better treatments, how to give them personalized treatments so that their cancer can be cured or at least delayed so that they can have quality time with their family members. Mm. Now, another question is how to pick patient early. So we have invested a lot of time in developing early detection tests so that patients can be diagnosed early as well. Third component is that our life have changed. Every 10, 15 years, we are changing significantly. You know, previously, people used to have five kids. Mm. Uh, you know, they will start having kids after 20s. Now people will not have kids even, even in 30s. And some people will even delay it to 40s. What is very clear is that our life choices makes a huge difference in case of reproductive tract cancers. Ovarian cancer doesn't magically appear from somewhere, we have to understand many other processes which lead to that. If you have a car has an accident today and nobody knows how to the car was made, nobody will be able to fix it. So same as cancer. Cancer is basically something which is almost like an accident, growing abnormally. But somebody has to understand what was normal like so that we can correct
1: it. Pradeep's research focuses on the pathology of ovarian and endometrial cancers, the cause and effect of the disease. Until recently, it was thought ovarian cancer started in the ovaries now thanks to pradeep's research we know that in most cases it starts in the fallopian tubes visible by precursive lesions ovarian cancer is essentially the uncontrolled growth and division of abnormal cells but because this is happening in the reproductive tract every time a woman menstruates and new cells are destroyed and created the risk of developing ovarian cancer also increases.
3: Now, from initial stage when the lesions are present to the time when it is spread everywhere, it's usually four to ten years. So it's not like it's happening overnight. So if there was a test, then four to ten years of window to capture it at early stages is quite a long window. It's not like there is a long window which which where the cancer moves from the tubes to ovaries to other organs where it kills. So, so if it is just limited to reproductive tract, you will be cured with current treatments because surgeon will surgically remove the tubes and ovaries and, and the uterus usually, and you're fine. So one of the things we have been doing is that because of awareness, more women are coming forward when they are having surgeries, that small bit of tissue is given to us and then also willing to give us a little bit of blood samples that allow us to ask questions like, if you got a cancer, that means you have a lot of abnormal cells in your body. If we take an aged-matched patient who doesn't have a disease, what is happening in her blood and what is happening in yours? That means those cells, if they divided so much that they have filled your whole cavity, they have invaded other organs, they must be secreting something. And usually those cells release proteins. And then we are capturing those proteins and say, if you find these four proteins, that means you have ovarian cancer. If you find these four set of proteins, you have endometrial cancer. If you can find few of these uh, proteins floating in your blood, you might have endometriosis. So first we develop a blood test for ovarian cancer, which we have patented in US, Europe, as well as in Australia and it is able to work much better than what is currently available.
1: Not only have Pradeep and his team developed a novel blood test that can identify ovarian cancer in its early stages, but they've also developed a test that can detect endometrial cancer. The goal is to bring this test to market within five years this research has given rise to the development of targeted therapies to treat ovarian cancer. But that's not all they've been working on. In a recent study published, Pradeep and his team have established a strong link between the reproductive habits of women and ovarian cancer. And it all starts with menstruation.
3: If you're constantly cycling, then it's almost like saying you are going every day on a highway with a 120 kilometer speed. So that means you are likely to have accident because every time you cycle, cells will be be sloughed off or come out because of menses. And then new cells need to be formed. Every time new cells form, they acquire mutations. Those genetic mutations are the basis for cancer development. And then if you're constantly going every month, that means you are accumulating those mutations over time. There's lots and lots of cells in there. Lots and lots of cells, millions of cells. Whereas, if you are pregnant, nine months, that process stops. Mm. If you are on contraception, that system is stopped. That means your car is parked in the garage. Now, you're not going on highway on 120 kilometers per hour every day. You have decided to park it and you only take it when you need to. So, what we see in now in chickens, for example, in wild, chicken will only give 10 to 15 eggs in a year. We domesticated egg to give 250 to 300 eggs in a year. We wanted more eggs. So that's what we have done. We selected for it. And the only other animal which develop ovarian cancer similar to humans is chickens. They get same disease with the same severity. And it spreads everywhere in their peritoneal organs. The difference is their farmer will see it and chuck in the bin. That goes on to show that just changing the reproductive habits has a huge impact on reproductive tract cancers. And now if you give contraception to chickens, if you mimic all the, you know, combined oral contraceptive chemicals, more than 90% of this, you know, cancer is suppressed. Naturally, we are not going to say that then everybody has to be pregnant, you know. What we are saying is that we can develop better tools, we can develop better drugs to mimic those advantages and women should be aware of the benefits of their decisions, or benefits, or or the decisions, you know, which might not be beneficial for them.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about other findings that that you've been able to establish? So this
3: is not just our group. There's a, there's a massive cohort of people. This has been done now in multiple uh, countries. Of course, that women in Asian countries develop less ovarian cancer compared to Western countries, but when those women move to Western countries, their risk is similar. So that means it's to do with the lifestyle factors and a lot to do with number of kids. So so first pregnancy naturally reduces your risk quite significantly, up to 30%. And every subsequent pregnancy is 14% decrease. And that is, you know, as we discussed, it's a lot to do with how your reproductive tract is functioning and the dominance of that hormone called progesterone, which is sort of suppresses And keep it calm then you have women who are infertile their risk increases because they have been constantly cycling
1: what pradeep has found is that women who have not had children or breastfed are at an increased risk of developing ovarian cancer they also found that oral contraceptive use lowers the risk of ovarian cancer by 50 percent without affecting the risk of breast cancer. And that full-term pregnancy decreases ovarian cancer risk by 40%.
3: Even precursor lesions are less in women who have sort of taken these educated decisions. So it's not just contraception, it's just how you're managing your health.
2: For mm. example,
3: endometrial cancer is one of those cancers which is worldwide, especially in Western countries, is increased but almost doubled in last 20 years and it will increase 50% of the time in 2040 and if you look at single factor which is contributing to that is obesity right so so how to sort of manage you know overall health
1: lifestyle factors, lifestyle
3: factors. Mm-hmm. and and that comes because there is a you know plenty of food access to food it doesn't mean that obesity is only factor lean women will also develop cancer but that is what we are seeing now in younger women. So in younger women who are diagnosed at early stages, most often it is associated with body weight. And most often it is also coming at early and earlier. It used to be around 50. Now it's suddenly having even having patients at 30 or 40. So that means the age is also changing.
2: I think reproductive issues are spoken about more now, but... There's probably still a lot of taboo. You know, often people don't speak to their friends about their vulvas being itchy for the last six months, you know, or it's just something that women don't necessarily talk to one another about and they probably should or they're embarrassed to talk to their doctor about for whatever reason. It might be that, you know, the women might say, well, I've got a male doctor so I don't want to talk to him about Mm. that. I think we're also in some respects from a research and awareness point of view, we're the poor cousin to breast cancer. Huge strides have been made in the treatment of breast cancer and a lot of that's been to do with the money that's poured into research and we just don't have that in the gynae cancer space. Um, so I think there definitely needs to be more awareness.
0: We went to Bathurst to the regional CWA and we presented what we knew and the professor and also Brett and I were there Women were coming up to us, even in Sydney, when we had the other one, and asking what are the symptoms. The decade before, there were about 2,800 truck drivers killed in accidents. But in that same time, there was nearly 14,000 women died from ovarian cancer.
1: Brian and his son Brett have been on a mission to prevent the same unbearable loss happening to other families. They've been travelling around to branches of the Country Women's Association, sharing their story and spreading awareness. Because here's the thing, period pain, endometriosis, ovarian cancer, reproductive health is just something that as a society, we don't talk about. They're taboo, as Rachel said. Interestingly, the word taboo is actually derived from Polynesian words that mean both sacred and menstrual blood.
3: So it's not like how to address it, it's just how to hide it. Mm. So that means women sort of double up that tolerance and and you are sort of educating young girls from very early, even when they are first cycle, that expect pain. And and suddenly you are sort of educating and and sort of almost, you know, brainwashing them to accept that this is normal. It's not normal to be staying in the bed. It's not normal to be bleeding that much. And naturally, over time, if you think about for 50 years, that is also a loss of financial contribution that you will be able to contribute less to your workplace. Mm. You will be able to contribute less to your super. And that is, you know, if you think about that as a diabetes, so, so women, number of women affected by endometriosis is, is as much as affected by uh, diabetes. But everybody knows about diabetes, you know. You don't Mm -hmm. wait for eight years to get diagnosis. Mm. That's where sort of like we felt like this is sort of unfair. And that's why we sort of want to make a difference in that particular area. For us is that can we make smaller differences and keep improving at it instead of promising that we will completely cure something or completely change that paradigm. And that's what I've been my goal. And I keep telling my team that all we have to grow is grow by 0.01% because that percentage is a huge difference when you got 196 million women affected by a condition.
1: The work that you're doing is making a difference. You know, you've made some major inroads already. Yeah. And one of the things is that you've identified a protein that can act as a tumor suppressor yeah. when treating chemo-resistant cancer. Huge. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? So, so
3: one of the approaches we took is that if... Chemo is given to patients. So initially, majority of ovarian cancer patients will respond and they will be happy because the tumor will get shrunk. The marker for the tumor in their blood comes down. They're all sort of excited about it, that finally there's a there is some glimmer of hope. Mm-hmm. And after a while, tumor comes with vengeance. And that is where it stays described as chemo resistance. So now you run out of options. So we have been working with these women to try to find options for them. So one of the ways to do it is that when they develop fluid accumulation, it is called ascites. So what happens is that cancer cells start invading everywhere. So other vital organs like kidney or the, you know, liver and other areas start secreting a lot of excess fluid which get accumulated in their belly. We collect those fluids and then in that there are billions of these cancer cells we can grow them exactly like they grow inside the body and ask a question, what will kill them? Mm. Is there any drug which is approved for pancreatic cancer, approved for brain cancer, which will not normally will be needed, will be used to treat it? And second is, we can ask a question, what is the reason these cells become chemo-resistant? Chemo is almost like a poison, which is killing majority of the cells. Why these cells develop that capability? And we found that group of proteins was upregulated in these cells. So now our goal is, can we co-target with chemo so that they become sensitive?
1: Can we find those proteins and figure out what the difference what is? What the difference is,
3: yeah. So that again goes on to show that reproductive health management practices is needed and also women need to be educated that th- their choices matters in, in terms of developing these cancers.
0: It is, it's a beast that just lies there and it's well termed the silent killer because that's what it does.
1: Thanks to Brian's advocacy work, the Country Women's Association recently raised and donated over $36,000 for Pradeep's research. And he doesn't plan to stop there.
0: We will win a lotto, and when we do, we're going to take the professor with us and we'll just go up and down the, the country, educating women to watch for it, because in early stages they can. Our next plan was to go to Tamworth, Dubbo and Wagga. And, pull, you know, and just have an open forum with
1: women. You're doing such incredible and important work, Pradeep. Well, what do you see as next for the Global Centre for Gynaecological Diseases?
3: So currently, we immediately, if I say, that we have been working with few companies and improving their products. A lot of products, even over-the-counter products, which are available for women' health, They actually do more harm than the good. So how to make them better? So that will be our goal in next five years. Then we are also working on early detection test. And all these three conditions, we want to make sure that women have options so that there's some sort of triaging tool. Let's say you have pain in your abdomen. You are having indigestive problems. You are having some pain when you are urinating. You can have some test like COVID. So instead of saying it is an early detection, it could be a triaging too. Mm. Just saying, let's rule out a vein cancer first. So how to give oncologists more choices? You know, once you have failed few cycles of chemo, suddenly women start giving up hope and, and sort of accept that this is probably the, the end. But we can take those cells, grow them, and then test combinations which might work. And it has already been now done in two patients where we are able to extend for two years, three years so so how we develop those technologies and make available to patients and oncologists also to make so that they can make informed decisions and that is something we are also really now working hard so that it can be applied as well
1: and it, it's so hard to think you know when we say stats we say you know the 14000 women but they're they're all people you know that that have yes. families and they have yes. loved ones just like nola
0: You need to, it's like two horses in a dray, you need a team, but if you've got a good woman that controls the house and does that and you you can work hard and and know that everything's okay, I was just lucky. I was, you know, I can't, I I can't get over how lucky I was to have her for as long as I did.
1: Professor Tenoir's pioneering contributions to ovarian cancer research are nothing short of remarkable, with the potential to save thousands of women from saying goodbye too early. In just five years, doctors could finally have an effective method for detecting cancer at a time when it's still highly treatable. Unravelling the intricate web of reproductive cancers at a molecular and genetic level inches us closer to the realisation of personalised medicine, where treatments can be tailored to an individual's needs, giving families the ultimate gift, more time with their loved ones. The establishment of the Global Centre of Gynaecological Diseases Bringing together critical elements of research, philanthropy and industry collaboration casts a powerful spotlight on an often overlooked facet of women's health. And the emphasis placed on education and awareness within the centre equips women with the knowledge and tools necessary to make informed decisions about their health. Because after all, women's health issues impact each and every one of us. By joining forces to champion these crucial causes, we're working towards a healthier, more inclusive future. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle. Hosted by me, Sharni Wellington. Produced by Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. With audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener